Welcome back to Winning with Connections. This is Donna Honeycutt, and today's guest is General Mike Jones, retired, who has been a tremendous support to our firm and to each of our individual growths as leaders, Lauren and I, while growing a firm as well. One of the really wonderful things about being able to run the firm that we run is that we've had access to some of the most tremendous talents out there, and, and we get to work with people that are really, really at the top of their game. I don't like to throw around the term world class, but when you're talking about the U.S. military and certain generals within the U.S. military, you really are talking about world class talent that we get to interact with every day among, among other leaders. So Mike Jones is one that has taught us quite a bit about leadership, about how to talk and about how to listen. And I am really excited to be able to share this with the listening audience. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Donna. It's very kind of you and uh, great to be here with you and um, honored to join you. Let's just dive right into it. I would love for you to tell us what was your journey like to becoming a leader, starting with what did you think you were going to be when you grow up and how did you find yourself where you were as you move through your career? Uh, well, like a lot of military folks, I was growing up, I never imagined that I would serve for 34 years in, in the military. But uh, as I was uh, in college and uh, met uh, a bunch of military folks, became interested in doing a tour. My family, my father had served in the military uh, back in the Second World War, and I had brothers, each of which did a stint in the military. And so I thought that this would be interesting just to be in the military and serve a tour and maybe see the world a little bit. And then I kind of progressively went through one assignment after another for about 34 years. And uh, of course, it started like, you know, very commonly, like all military officers do. I, I was an armor officer. And so I served in platoons and companies and positions at battalion brigade level and so forth. And each of those is a leadership experience where you get to practice leadership and learn and also to fail a lot. We have an environment where you get to learn and make mistakes in a relatively benign environment so that you learn more about how to be a leader at increasingly more senior levels. And and I served at various echelons, mostly in tactical units and operational jobs, but also in the the schoolhouse at the armor school a couple of times. And then I was also given the opportunity to serve at the Pentagon on the joint staff for a couple of tours and on the Army staff. And so I got to see leadership at very senior levels, as well as the experience of leading at very junior levels. Well, one of the things that I found so interesting about talking to you is that you have had this exposure and this experience at the highest levels. I hope it's okay to mention this. I'll mention this in vagaries, but you you talked about one day when you had to go do an operation and you did an operation. And then when you got back to your office, which was across the border, there was a conversation with, with the president and the president asked certain questions about it. And you mentioned this to me, like, it was no big deal. I, I had never known before then that you had been involved in such, you know, world affecting exercises and, and had had so much impact. And so one of the things I found about you that I think is really exemplary is both your discretion and your humility. Tell me about how many of those experiences were really the leadership or, or do you see the leadership more in the nuts and bolts of getting there? Well, well, I think it's both. I mean, every experience 
kind of contributes to that database. I was lucky to be in several positions when I was the guy responsible for Middle East strategic plans and policy on the joint staff. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the interagency process, seeing how our government works in working with other agencies of government, formulation of policy and strategy and so forth. I did get to accompany the chairman or the vice chairman or so forth on a number of uh, meetings with our national leadership. And then, of course, by video teleconference during the war, I was often in the room to observe the national leadership and it's part of all the process. And so so I was lucky enough to get to observe that. And being in positions where you can observe senior leaders is very informative. I mean, you, you really learn a lot if you can just manage to grasp, you know, how they're managing to be as effective as they are. So I hope I learned a lot from those experiences. And let me ask you plainly, which of those examples of leadership did you find really compelling? And, and what do you think were the differences at that extremely high, the highest levels of leadership that made the difference between successful leadership and, and leadership that was not effective? Well, first of all, I'll say I learned a lot from all of it, whether it was good or bad leadership. <laughs> you get to see both. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, at, at the end of the day, at the senior leadership level, there are two major factors in my mind. The first is communication. Good leaders are effective communicators. And communication is a two-way street. One is that they they listen intently and do their very best to understand what's being said. And they also are very clear and effective in their communication so that there's no doubt about what they're saying. So that's the first piece. And the second thing is the ability to think strategically. And by that, what I mean is to be able to think very broadly and very long term. Uh, And I think I've told you the story about General Shinseki and and when he was the chief staff of the army and I was the head of his staff group. And I was I thought I was giving him good advice as we did preparations with him for certain meetings and so forth. And but often he would then do something different than what I recommended. And and I had to go to him and say, I obviously am not inside your head. What is it I'm missing about my analysis that you're seeing very differently. And he explained to me that when he makes decisions, he doesn't necessarily make the decisions that are best for him and in the immediate moment, that he has to think about the chief after next, which if you think in terms of time, that's somewhere between four and eight years farther down the road. And so when he was making decisions, he wasn't thinking about what's the optimal thing for me, but what's the thing that allows the chief after next to be able to have the most flexibility to deal with problems that I can't even imagine what they are today. And to me, that's what strategic thinking is all about, being able to think that very long term, not just with what the immediate problem is, but what are the long term consequences of your actions? That's really what strategic leaders do. Which also involves, to some degree, taking yourself out of the equation, imagining a world where you're not leading anymore and someone else has inherited what you've built. Well, true. And that's one of the reasons why part of the Army values is this idea of selfless service, that in order to be an effective strategic leader or senior leader, in my opinion, you have to become a selfless servant, as Greenwood would say, a servant leader that places the good of the organization above you necessarily your personal, you know, your personal good. That's 
to me, to be an effective senior leader, uh, what you have to do. So you raise an interesting question, because when we look at a lot of our political leaders, some of the ones that have become legends and really stood out in history have done so because of their concern for the future of the republic. You know, General Washington comes to mind, putting in place the tradition that we don't have a president for more than two terms so that we never confuse our political leaders with kings. And then on the other hand, we have some people that maybe thought that they were leading for the good of the institution and the good of the government, but really maybe were trying to get the best press or have the most power for power's sake. So can, can you speak to how we can tell the difference between those kinds of leaders and, and potentially as followers, what we should be on the lookout for when we're fielding what our leaders are telling us? You know, I'm, I'm not sure that I have you know, any particular great insight into how do you judge what kind of leader someone is. I mean, I think you can just use your sense and see people who are self-serving versus people who are doing good on the part of the organization or doing the best thing for the organization, even if it involves some personal sacrifice. And, And you see that. You see politicians who stand up for principle and try to do the right thing even though sometimes it might not be the popular thing. And there's always an element of balance because we are not perfect in our judgments. So we do have to understand sometimes you might not know necessarily what the right thing is. And the other thing is when you are in public service, and this is, you know, not military issue, but if you're in public service uh, as a politician, you are there to represent your constituents. And so sometimes you have to make a judgment of things you might not personally agree with, but because it's the will of your constituents, that's what you need to do. And there are other times when, as a matter of principle, you have to do what you think is right, regardless of what the consequences are with your constituents. And so it's not easy to divine. I think you just have to observe people over time and figure out you know, who you trust is going to do the right thing. And do you find that, so there's no difference in the way that the leaders, the ones that are really careerist versus, and, and it's not necessarily a zero sum equation, obviously, sometimes you can be careerist by pursuing what's good for the organization. Do you find that the, the, the flavor of the communication coming out of those leaders is roughly the same, regardless of what's driving them? I'm not sure I can answer that other than to say, you know, communication, some people are skilled communicators and some are not. And the motives behind the communication don't necessarily get reflected in the quality of the communications. Again, it's a judgment issue where I think you have to just observe and to do the best you can to define or to divine who the people are that are genuinely interested in the the organization and its success versus those who are trying to climb the ladder, so to speak, and are looking out for themselves. And honestly, I think that if you observe people with enough time, it becomes evident who those are that are self-serving versus those that are servants of the organizations or the people that they work for them. Tell me what kind of indicia of leadership qualities you saw in people that you were commanding and how you responded to that to cultivate their talent as leaders and also to cultivate them for leadership. 
Well, in trying to judge leadership potential, which is is what we're really talking about, obviously you look for a number of qualities in leaders. One is competence, of course, that they have to be competent in the the job that they are doing or the jobs of the the people that are are working for them. You look at their leadership skills. Do they have the ability to influence their subordinates in order to get the missions that are assigned to them accomplished? You also have to look at how they go about doing those things as well, because in peacetime in the military, there are a lot of things that it doesn't take much leadership to get done. You can use your authority in order to just tell people what needs to be done and they'll do it because there's no particular personal sacrifice. So you don't need to actually use much influence. It's only when things get difficult, when there's personal sacrifice involved, when there's a high degree of teamwork that's needed and so forth, that you really see how effective someone is in being a leader. And under those periods of very high stress, when things aren't going right, for instance, how how they react when things are not going right in order to get things back on track and so forth. And those observations all kind of help you fill in, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of a person as a leader? And then the question becomes, how do I help develop that person? What could I do to help give them the kind of coaching and mentoring and so forth that helps them become a stronger leader? That's, you know, part of the art of this, this leadership thing is how do you make those judgments and then how do you provide that assistance to people? And really an integral part of your job as a leader, grooming your successors. Well, absolutely. Now, in my mind, that's true, whether it's industry or the military, it's always important to grow the team that can fill in and become the next leadership group. Because even in industry, whether it's uh, illness or someone leaves a position for another company or so forth, having someone who can take on a, a more senior leadership position is always important. Of course, in the military, it's part and parcel of what we do because in combat, especially, leaders can, can be uh, wounded or killed. And so everyone always needs to be able to step up to higher levels of leadership. And so you know, we have a philosophy of trying to train people to assume the responsibilities of the people two levels above them. So if there was a need that, that they could step up and be successful. So that is, that's something that's kind of ever present as part of the military culture is training people and giving them the ability to step up into positions of higher levels of leadership. And how did you translate that into the commercial world? You left the military and you started working with Spectrum Consulting, and, and I'll let you describe that accurately, but I know that you mentored a whole lot of industry leaders. How did you translate what you had taken away from the military and how did you find that it applied in the commercial space? Well, first of all, when I left the military, I, I decided to to try to do something that was as unstructured and different as I could be from the institutional uh, institution of the military, but at the same time to use what I'd learned over those years, maybe to help some other people. And when it comes to leadership, the fundamentals are really no different. 
between industry and the military. The challenge, of course, is how you get there. There is a, a huge difference in the military and industry in terms of how you can dedicate time for leader development. I often use the example that when I came into the military after a number of years of pre-commissioning training, the Army sent me away for six months of schooling before my first job. And then after three years in my first several positions, they sent me away for another six months for, for more schooling. At the end of another, I think it was about five years, six years after that, they sent me away for a year of additional schooling. And I think it was another six years after that, they sent me away for another year of additional schooling. And somewhere in between there, they, they paid for me to get a master's degree. In industry, you can't send people away for all, all that time in order to focus on their development. You have to sort of do it while they're doing their jobs. And so, so the challenge of how you go about developing leaders is very, very different in industry than it is in the military because everybody's got a day-to-day job that has to be done and, and it's very difficult to send them away for long periods of time. But in terms of the skill sets themselves of how does one go about being a leader, how do you successfully be a, a leader, a personal leader of other individuals? And then how do you successfully transition to become an organizational leader where you can lead a large, complex organization where you, you don't have personal contact with everybody in the organization? How do you do that? And it's the techniques and how you go about doing it are very similar between industry and the military. It's just you don't have the luxury in industry of being able to dedicate a year to help somebody learn those skills. So these are things. How do you take, let's say, a small business built on personal relationships and trust of a particular leader because the people in the in the business are interacting with that leader all day long, every day? How do you then take that and amplify that, like you said, to a situation where you've got employees that never actually personally interact with the leadership or rarely? Right. Well, it, it's a part of that transition that, that I call moving from being an entrepreneurial leader of a small company where you do have contact with everybody to a larger company where you become an organizational leader. And what I mean by that is that you are in an organization that is of such size and complexity uh, that you have to try to influence people without necessarily having personal contact. You have to do it through a set of subordinates. And again, that's something that some people can adapt to much more easily than others. But I think it's a little bit of a challenge for everyone, you know, and it's just like it's a challenge in the military for us to grow into positions of leadership in larger, more complex organizations. So, you know, it starts with recognizing that you are in a different environment that is no longer a inability to influence people through personal contact. It also means that you have to use subordinate leaders to communicate what's important to you down to your lowest line level of employee. And so all of that goes back to being much more thoughtful about the objectives of the organization, the culture of the organization, the values, what's important to your company in making sure that you have articulated those. And increasingly, I suggest you have to record and document 
those things in a way that you don't necessarily have to do when you have personal contact with everybody in the company every day. So things like evaluating what is our culture, you know, what are the values that we have in this organization, and then recording those so that everybody can see them and understand them, even though they may not have personal contact with the leader of the company or the, or the organization. Things like thinking through how you communicate. And we communicate in lots of ways. It's, it's verbal communication. It's written communication of things that we have passed, passed along. It's nonverbal communication. It's, it's physical behaviors and so forth that people observe. And so thinking through how are we communicating, what do we want to communicate? Uh, and then also, how do I acquire information in order to maintain a sense of whether my communication is being effective so that I understand what's really going on in my organization. I have to think through how I collect information differently because I can't do it through personal observation anymore. There aren't enough hours in the day. I can't be in five different places at one time and so forth. So all of those things are part of this adaptation to become an organizational leader that uh, takes effort in order to think it through and to practice it. It's it's been a really interesting journey for us that that I think you've observed and supported as we've gone from a firm of seven people to a firm of over 300. And one thing that I have noticed, and I think that you need to plan for, is that where things don't add up logically, according to sort of the big picture that you've presented to your company and your employees, people will try to substitute their own explanation. So in a vacuum of why something is done or in a vacuum of why something is an exception or in the vacuum of why someone is selected for a particular role and someone is not, unless you actively preemptively communicate how those decisions are made within the comprehensive structure, the values of the organization, I think that's sort of your your first line of of risk of people substituting their own explanations in there, which from their point of view are completely logical and things can go awry that way. How do you recommend specifically fielding that challenge, making sure that what decisions are made align and if they don't seem to align on the face or communicated, what what is your advice on that issue? Well, I think it it goes back to probably the most important word uh, for leaderships of of companies that are operating at the organizational level of leadership is, is the word why. And it can be applied in a lot of different ways. The first thing is in giving guidance or direction to the company and so forth, not only explaining what needs to occur, but why we need to do things, you know, why we're making decisions that we're making, why we're giving guidance that we're giving and so forth is important because without understanding the why, then it doesn't really empower subordinates to implement a lot of what we direct them to do. Also, uh, taking the time to help explain why, develops a higher degree of trust, which is very important for any leader to have with their subordinates. It's really a trust relationship. And part of building trust is helping folks understand your thinking about why you're doing what you're doing. On the other hand, 
asking the question why is also very important for leaders in this environment. When, when people are expressing what they think or what they feel, asking the question why they feel that way or why they believe what they believe is also very important because gaining that understanding also helps you to know whether or not the culture in your company that you are trying to maintain, whether the understanding of the company guidance and policies and objectives and so forth is consistent and so forth. It's only by asking the question why that you really get the insights to know whether or not you're on track or whether you need as a leader need to make course adjustments. And so to me, that's an important part of how, how you implement that. And I can't overemphasize how important, and I call it the company culture, it's really that common set of company values, how important that is. Because at the end of the day, people's behavior is going to be guided by the values that they abide by, the values that they have. And so if we want people to have the ability to take initiative and to do things without guidance necessarily and be absolutely creative, but to do it in a way that's consonant with what the company is trying to achieve, making sure that everybody's aligned with the company culture is really important in my mind. So to some degree, what I think I hear you saying is that you want everyone down the chain of command to have a sense of what would the leader do? What would the guiding values and the guiding principles of the leader be? And ideally, to identify with those principles and values. Absolutely. I mean, Don, you hit it exactly right on the head. And that is if by having a common set of values and by understanding you know, what it is the leadership of the company is trying to accomplish. It really empowers people to take initiative and to be agile and responsive and quick to market and so forth in a way that if you don't have that, it really encumbers people. In, in the military, we have as part of the orders that we give in the Army, we have a thing called the commander's intent. And the commander's intent explains why we're doing an operation and what outcome we're trying to achieve. And, and the reason is, is because we recognize that in any operation, things are always going to be very fluid and dynamic. And people are going to have to make decisions, sometimes without communication with their, their higher headquarters or without the ability to check with the boss about, hey, what should I do here? And, and therefore, if they are empowered by understanding the intent of the commander, to know what the outcomes are that we're trying to achieve and why we're doing what we're doing. It really empowers them in a way that allows them to be successful. And that in turn makes the, the organization successful. And so I would submit it's, it's very similar in industry. The methods might be a little different. We might not call it commander's intent, but really understanding what are the objectives of the company? Why are we doing what we're doing? And within the parameters of a common set of cultural values, that really becomes very empowering for, for people in a company. So I've always found it 
interesting to observe the companies around us that we interact with every day and see how it is that they define themselves to the public. I imagine they also define themselves internally to, to their entire organization that way. We've talked about this concept of, the, you know, the one thing that each firm prides itself on doing better than anybody else. And, and I've read a couple of case studies, for example, there was a famous case study on Walgreens where they define themselves by how many more things someone would come in and purchase in addition to the thing they came in and purchased. So it was sort of the the upsell. That was their one metric of success. And, and, and that was the message that they continued to send out to their staff. And that's what made the firm successful. International Paper is one where their ethos was about taking paper and making it into useful products. And they were very successful doing that. There's a plumber around here called Benjamin Franklin, the punctual plumber. And I've always found that to be really interesting because it's a wildly successful company. And they've set out the metric for themselves that if they're punctual, then they've succeeded, which is a really interesting metric. How do you advise leaders and firms to to package what they stand for? How many things can you stand for at one time? And what do you, how do you choose those things? Well, I think that it, it kind of goes back to the strategic planning of a company, and that is, you know, I recommend everybody, regardless of size of the company, have a business plan, <laughs> first thing. And in your business plan, you first of all, you, you have to define, you know, what is your product or service or whatever? What is it that you want to sell or to market? And then, of course, you're going to look at the competitive landscape and figure out how big is the market and who are my competitors and what are their competitive advantages and disadvantages vis-a-vis me? And likewise, what are my competitive advantages? What makes my product or my service special? If one would choose it above and beyond anything else. And that often is driven by what do our customers value? So it could be that what consumers value is, you know, a punctual plumber. The people that if they say they're going to be there at nine o'clock are going to actually be there at nine o'clock because it's important to you as a consumer. In the retail business, one of the things that's discovered is clearly you can get a bigger selection and you can probably get a cheaper price ordering things online than you can from going to a retail store. So why would anybody ever go to a retail store? And what I tell my friends in the retail business, it's all about customer touch. The only reason someone goes into a store with any more, if they are technically competent, is to get that personal touch, either the personal advice of an expert person who can give you advice about, okay, what product is really going to suit your needs the best, or Maybe it's just the warmth of another human being in being able to do that purchase. But there has to be some competitive advantage that you have if you're going to be successful in making sure everybody knows that, hey, this is our competitive advantage. This is what is important to us as a company. That becomes part of that company culture that says we have to exploit our competitive advantage in the market space in order to be successful. That does that address your question? It does, I think. So you're saying that the 
the values of the company should align with some kind of particular value proposition to the customer. And then those values and those priorities serve both as a distinguisher in the competitive field, and they also serve as guiding principles of what your staff should be prioritizing to allow them to be flexible in the moment. Yeah, exactly. That, And again, that the company culture, the reason why I emphasize it so much and, and why it is important is because if it's not aligned with a number of things, one is if it's not aligned with your market and your customer's expectations, you're going to have a problem being successful. Also, if it's not aligned with your behavior, you're going to have a hard time being successful. So it is very, very important and worth a lot of energy by senior leaders to, number one, make sure we have defined that well. And then number two, that we're watching our actions and activities and making sure that we're fulfilling what we say are the values that are in our culture. You bring up an interesting point. It's not just what we say, it's also what we do. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. You know, what we say is important and, in fact, critical because it's how we communicate. But as I mentioned, we communicate in lots of different ways. We communicate to a large degree in what we do or our physical behaviors and so forth. So, for instance, if we say in an organization that uh, the most important thing is this, but the leaders are doing something else, then it's obviously not the most important thing. If if the most important thing in our company is, uh, let's say, the, the quality that we are providing to our customers, but the, what we do is by all these cost-cutting measures that we put into place, we we end up harming the quality. Let's say we we no longer inspect the components that are coming in from our suppliers. Well, I'm sorry, but if we're not ensuring the components have a high degree of quality when before we assemble our product, then the probability of our product being a high high quality product goes down. So we're not behaving in a way that re- really says that we really value what we say we value, or we're acting in a different way. Or if we say the most important thing in our company is people, but our leadership never actually goes and spends any time with people. If the leadership isn't using metrics and in management methods in order to monitor and take care of people, then we can say that what's really important to us is people, but we're not demonstrating that every day. And so, therefore, our real values are something different. And any time we get a difference between what our stated values are and our and what we do, what our real values are, that's a very unhealthy dissonance to have. And, and what happens when stated values are formulated in words that mean different things to different people? So let's talk about you know, work-life balance. Work-life balance is a term that I learned to be a little nervous about because different people mean different things by it. Some people mean they want to have time to have a life outside the office, which in our view is critical to be a productive professional. Other people mean I'd like to do the job when I can get to it, but then these other things are going to take priority. And there are a lot of jobs that, that 
you know, are, are responsive to that kind of need. And, and the magic there is really to match up the right person with the right need. But what about this idea that people can take words that you say and hear them in a completely different way than what you were thinking when you spoke them? Well, you hit on a really important topic for leaders, especially. And, and that's just most simply language is critical because it's the tool that enables communication. You know, you know, at the most basic level, communication is it's a transmitter, it's a message, and it's a receiver, kind of like a radio. But the medium is language, whether it's written language or verbal language or even nonverbal language. You know, and a, and a boss of mine, you know, once told me, hey, Jones, words are important because they mean something. And I've always taken that to heart because he was exactly right. Effective communication only occurs if we're in agreement what the words mean. And I've seen lots of arguments between people because each side of the argument was putting a different meaning on the words that were being used. And there really was no disagreement other than the fact that they had, didn't have a common understanding of what the words meant. And so in the military, we place such a premium on common definition words that, that we create publications that are our own dictionaries. A joint Publication One is basically a dictionary of terms and acronyms that the military uses. And it's about, I think, 350 pages or so of stuff in order to make sure that people speak a common military language. So an example we, we often use is, is a term that in uh, if I was in the Army and I told somebody to secure a bridge, well, with a non-military group of people, that could mean a lot of different things. For some people, it would mean I have to actually be on the bridge. And other, pe other people would say, well, I don't necessarily be, need to be on the bridge to secure the bridge and so forth. And, and so in the military, we actually define all that stuff. So we say, hey, if you want somebody to be on the bridge, the right word is to seize the bridge. That means you're going to physically occupy it. If you're going to secure the bridge, you're going to make sure the enemy can't control it and that you can use it for your own purposes, you know, and so forth. And so... So clarity of words is so critical that, that I often suggest people as part of the conversation, ask people, what do they mean by the words that they're using to ensure that we have common understanding? Because if we're using the same word to mean two different things, we're never going to have effective communication, I don't think. And is that where the metrics come in? So if I'm a firm that says that I value quality, how can I ensure that what I mean when I say quality is read appropriately and executed appropriately by the rest of the firm? Right. Well, I, I think you have to do a couple things. First of all, you have to define what does quality mean? Does it mean customer satisfaction? Does it mean if you're in a, a manufacturing business, it's very easy to define quality that we're going to have a tolerance of two microns between every part and this and that and the other. It's a little harder to define quality in the services industry, but certainly customer satisfaction, lots of other things can, can be part of how you define what quality means. But that's the first step is define, you know, what does that mean to you as a company? And then the second thing is then you have to figure out how am I going to measure that? Is quality, like I said, in industry, it's, it's pretty easy. Okay, we're going to sample one of every 10 widgets that comes off the assembly line to make sure that it's within the specification of the tolerances that we've established and so forth. In the services industry, it's a little harder, but you can still measure it in, in a number of different ways. If it's in the government business, it could be as simple as PARS ratings or 
you know, customer satisfaction surveys or, you know, personal interviews or lots of different things. And it might be a combination of things that determine how are we going to measure whether or not we're achieving that objective or, or that standard of performance that we are, are hoping to achieve. So I think you have to do both. You have to define it and then you have to really understand how you're going to measure it. It's interesting, you know, within our own firm, we don't say that quality is our value. We've, we've gotten a lot more precise. We say that credibility and good government are our values. And I, I certainly understand that people could see good government in different ways, but that's been sufficiently narrow, I think, to that along with this principle of credibility to give our staff the ability to act in real time and say, you know, what would the leadership do? What does this company stand for? What would this company want me to do? But we have further defined what does credibility mean? What does this mean on your performance review? How do we measure credibility? What are the examples of, of things that give this company credibility? And, you know, we have definitions of good government and they, they, they're very much woven into credibility. Part of the reason for that was that it was very precise. We did not want to use words like quality. And, and as you say, especially when you're not manufacturing widgets, it's very hard to get any kind of consensus on what quality means. So, you know, you do see a lot of companies that say, well, their values are quality, integrity, you know, all these words that are, tend to be somewhat overused. And, and so I think what you're saying is that if the apparatus isn't there behind those words to fully flesh them out and truly give them meaning and, and truly socialize among everybody involved in the organization, what they really mean and how that relates to what is expected of each participants in the organization, then they're just kind of pablum. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I, th I think on one hand, it, it is important to to have bumper stickers, to have mm -hmm. things that people can remember that, hey, what we stand for is A, B, and C, or, or, or things like that are very useful. But, but I would agree with you that that is insufficient if we don't define what those things are in a meaningful and commonly understood way. And, and part of that is, in fact, you know, what is it that gives you that competitive advantage? So something like uh, credibility, where our customers know that we are going to fulfill the promises that we make, that they can always count on us, uh, that we will give them not only exactly what they ask for, but we will give it to them in a way that will help their organization be very successful that that confidence by the customers becomes a competitive advantage because at the end of the day, the reputation is important. And part of the competitive advantage of any company can be its reputation for either exceptional quality, in some cases, exceptional price or exceptional, you know, something that's different from the rest of the market. That re reputation is an important part uh, of their appeal and their success. So, so some of the successful examples of what you just described that I think of are Walmart, always lower prices, Facebook, move fast and break things and increase sharing. What are some that you've seen that you think are particularly successful? Well, I think, you know, one of the, one of the most successful that actually has, has ebbed and flowed, interestingly, is Home Depot. Home Depot built their business on the idea that in-store expertise 
was going to be their differentiator. So that when you went into the store, a no kidding craftsman would be there to talk to you about your project. So I'm going to do this X project, but, you know, of course, I've never done it before. Uh, I maybe I've read a book about it or I've, you know, nowadays YouTube did or something. But when I went into the store, I would have somebody who was really an expert that when I said, okay, I need this stuff to be able to do this, who could do, who say exactly, okay, so here's how you do this project. Here's a little advice, avoid this problem, do this. By the way, here's the tool you need, or here's the material that you need and so forth. That was the differentiator. And that's why they became very popular for people doing home improvement is because you could actually go talk to an expert. Interestingly, at some point along the way, they, in a in cost-cutting, in a cost-cutting effort, decreased the number of craftsmen or craftspeople that they had in their stores walking the floors. So you no longer had that. And then what they found was they just became just like anybody else. And why not just order something online if you, you don't have somebody who's expert at it? And so they actually brought back more craftspeople and experts in their stores to, again, gain that market advantage of being the go-to place to go when you were going to do a project. And oh, by the way, because they were experts, they ended up having the side benefit of being great salespeople because they, because anybody who's ever done a lot of home improvement projects knows, or, or if you work on your car or whatever, you know that having the right tool makes life so much easier. So often the expert would say, oh, by the way, in addition to the material that you want, if you have this tool, it will make this go much smoother and so forth. And so there was really a lot of market advantage having the experts there beyond just the trust of the customer wanting to go there to learn how to do the project. They actually increased sales by virtue of having somebody that knew what do you really need in order to make it go smoothly. So that that's one company I can think of that understood what their key differentiator was, what their competitive advantage was. And it was ingrained in their workforce that, hey, it's all about helping their customers successfully do their home project. And then there's also a beautiful thing that happens if you crystallize what you stand for, you repeat what you stand for, you're consistent with what you stand for. You end up having a lot of people self-selecting into your organization that already share those values. So you don't necessarily need to teach them, which is very hard to teach values, right? Well, it's, it's hard to teach values, but people adopt values with especially with significant emotional events and and changing jobs are are emotional events for for a lot of people. And so I would say that in the military, of course, it's a very thoughtful, purposeful effort to have this group of civilians who come into the military culture to adopt that culture and those values as their own. And so that's kind of a very deliberate process. It starts on the first day of basic training or or the first day of officer uh, training and so forth. And it continues throughout a career. What I would say is that it's it's not you don't have basic training in companies, but you do have orientations for new employees. It, It starts as people come to the company and you can help them to adopt and incorporate the values of the company in their work. And in fact, you're exactly right that when you develop a reputation as a company with a certain culture, it tends to attract people who have those same set of values, that I want to work in a company that has these kinds of values. 
And so once that reputation is out there, it actually gets easier to hire people who have those same values that your company is promoting. That also brings in another issue. So the military in particular has a great advantage as a recruiter and as an employer because there are so many people that are brought up to believe in our country and believe in the military's mission in in keeping us safe and keeping democracy safe and kind of being the good guy in the world. What percent, if you had to guess, of people's commitment within the military to the mission above their own self is already sort of hardwired into them when they show up? And and what percent do you think is built up by this very successful process that that gets someone to put themselves in front of a bullet? Well, I don't know. You can put a percentage on it. It it varies a lot from individual to individual. But but selfless service and teamwork are obviously very important commodities or very important values in the military. And of course, we draw our workforce in the military, if we want to call it that, we draw that from a society that highly values individualism. So there is, to some degree, a cultural shift that has to occur for people in order to recognize and value the idea of teamwork and selfless service and sacrifice for the team and so forth. And that's why you have all of these things that are incorporated into the military training model, especially for new recruits and so forth, where, you know, you collectively have to do things in order to be successful, whether it's a, the barracks inspection or whether it's, you know, the obstacle course where you have to pull your, your buddies along in order to get over certain obstacles or, or whatever it happens to be. It's all very much orchestrated about demonstrating and reinforcing the value of teamwork and selflessness and in how important selfless service is. So so although because of the unique kind of situation that the military has, where we can spend a lot of time, especially with our, our new employees, bringing them on board and training them and, and helping them to adopt the values of the organization, it's different in industry, but I don't think it's any less important in industry. So again, it goes back to why firmly establishing the values of the organization and what they are, and then incorporating that into everything that we do, whether it's the our performance review system, whether it's our bringing on new people, uh, new employee orientation programs, or, or whatever you might have that hires people, to your process for how to select those people that you're going to bring on board. And making sure that you do everything you can to reinforce those values is just as important in industry as I think it is in the military. And so we do that, as you said, with a vocabulary and with the way we do things and with prioritization and with our top line bumper stickers and and with all of those things. And and I guess those do become increasingly important as an organization grows, going back to the beginning of our conversation, as the tools by which to amplify the leadership presence, even when the leaders are not there in the room. Right. It, It also goes back to one other thing I would add to that is how do how do we react to failures? It says a lot about the culture of an organization. So if We say we value people and initiative and creativity and so forth. 
but if anyone makes a mistake, we fire them. Then the question is, do we really value creativity? Because we all know that that you know that if you have a high degree of creativity, you're going to have a lot of failure. That we're going to try things that are new and innovative, and some of those are not going to work. So if the response to something not working, regardless of how minor it is, is the most severe of consequences, then, then we don't really believe in that value that we're espousing. Whereas there are other things, if we say integrity is sacrosanct in this company, and then we have someone who is dishonest that violates that integrity, but we just let it slide, we don't do anything about it, there is no discipline, and everybody sees that, of course, then what we're really communicating is that's not, the integrity is not really all that important to us. So how we react when our values don't hold up, where there is behavior that's not in consonant with our values is also very important. Do you have any advice for how to engage in, in screening or gatekeeping to ensure that as you bring people into your organization that they share your values? Well, first of all, I'm not a human resources expert. Right? <laughs> uh, so that, that's one you're going to have to talk to Heidi to make sure people stay on the, on the right side of legality. Uh, in order to make sure that, that we're being fair in our hiring practices. But obviously, if there are people who have a history of you know, not being honest or any violation of integrity in terms of the process of you know, resumes or, or some other things that, that are red flags that say, hey, this is not a person who's aligned with our organization, you know, screening those out as unqualified is, is very important. On the other hand, uh, we also ought not to be too quick to judge, I think, because the reality is there will be many people who will surprise you. One of the things that's common in the military is that who the most courageous people are on the battlefield is usually surprising. Often it is that quiet, sort of diminutive person or not the person that you would expect who would be a real hero in a situation that steps up in the most critical of times and exhibits extraordinary levels of courage. So, you know, the appearances can sometimes be a little bit deceiving in terms of how will people behave. So I I would say you, you, you do the best you can to make the judgments. You look for where there are red flags that say this is going to be a high risk proposition, you know, for somebody in this kind of position that we're hiring for. But at the same time, you keep an open mind and give people an opportunity. But that then takes you back to trying to make that judgment for the right fit for people in an organization. And that's, again, an art form. There's no real science. It's, there's this formula that you just plug this into and then you're going to get this out. It's really an art form to make those judgments as to, you know, which candidates are going to be best for what position. It's actually very helpful. But there are lots of techniques, by the way. There are techniques like, you know, not only multiple interviews, but peer interviews, having the people that are going to work with somebody else do an interview with them, having subordinate interviews, having people interview their potential bosses, give you their thoughts. I mean, there are lots of creative ways that you can look at people in order to try to make that judgment as to who's going to be the best fit in our organization. So what I would say is is be creative in how you try to make those judgments, but at the same time, be open to the fact that you really don't know for sure 
how someone's going to perform in an area if you have no experience with them. That's a really good point. Is there something that a leader should be doing in terms of communication to try to nurture the quiet ones or identify the quiet ones that that really have maybe extraordinary potential? Well, I think that number one is making sure that you are giving sufficient time to all of your folks, not necessarily the noisiest ones. So what I mean by that is that you are going to have a wide variety of personality types who are working for you as is in any leader. And what natural inclination is to to allow those who are the extroverts who are going to be gaining your attention just because of their personality to allow them to kind of dominate your time or your energy. And so you really have to look at those who are the quieter of the group and that kind of thing. And, and what I learned over time was really my, my introverted folks were extremely valuable. And the reason was because they weren't doing much talking, but they were doing a lot of thinking and they were doing a lot of really intent listening. And so quite often in a meeting, for instance, where I had a number of my reports uh, talking about a problem, there would be people who wouldn't be saying anything. And so I'd have to go out of my way to say, okay, well, listen, before we go any further, you know, Rebecca, what do you think about this? And, and Rebecca would have been sitting there not saying a word and probably would have left the room not saying a word. But when I, when I asked what she thought, I got a unique insight. I got something that was really thoughtful about what was being said because she wasn't spending a lot of time talking, but she was spending all of her time thinking about what was being said. And so I think you have to do that. You also have to encourage people. We have a stereotype in our society that says leaders are extroverts and followers are introverts. And that's, it's just not true. Some of the best leaders I've known uh, were introverts. Introversion or extroversion is a personality preference. I, I just don't see that there's a direct correlation between personality type and effective leadership. You know, I've seen very good leaders of, of both types. So that's important in, in looking at your subordinates is to recognize that your introverts can be just as effective leaders as anybody. And you really just have to sometimes ask for their views or give them the opportunity to perform in leadership positions that you might naturally not be inclined to because you know, they're not out in front of you every day. Yeah, it's, it's actually really insightful and, and a good reminder, I think. If you have time, I'd like to ask you a last question, maybe give sure. you a little bit of, of, of time to think about it. You and I have had a lot of conversations about words, and I love those conversations. I, I, I love language, and, and I think you do too. What do words mean? And they can mean the same thing to different people, or they can mean very different things to different people. When you observe leadership, are there particular words that you think are particularly constructive? And in the inverse, are there particular words that you think are particularly destructive? Well, I mean, I think, of course, there are words that are helpful and some that are hurtful. Of course, the most important word I think is, as I mentioned already, is the word why. Yes. Helping, getting an understanding of why someone is saying what they're saying or feeling what they're feeling and all that kind of stuff is very, very important because if you don't understand why, you, you probably don't really understand 
what they're trying to communicate, or at least it, it can help inform you as to what they're really trying to communicate. And obviously there are emotional, any word that evokes emotion, unless you're purposefully trying to evoke emotion, then you can, you should stay away from. And part of that is uh, a technique. Well, part of the, this is to be a good listener. It's very difficult to be a good communicator if you're not also trying to be a good listener. Now, you know, all of us have failed in that in you know a multitude of ways. I'm probably primary amongst those. But to be an active listener, to to intently listen, uh, and then to verify what you're hearing, you know, and, and using techniques like, hey, I, I think I understand what you said. Can I restate that back to you just to make sure I'm clear? Or could you help me understand what you meant by this? Or could you understand, help me understand why you believe so-and-so? You know, asking those questions in order to crystallize the communication so that you're really hearing the person and that you're not misinterpreting what they mean because you have a different set of definitions for the words that are being used, I think is, is very, very important. I think that being careful, being thoughtful about the words that we use so that it's only when we want to evoke emotion that we do it, that, that generally emotion, a lot of emotion especially, can get in the way of effective communication. So rather than saying, why did this fail, that conversation might start off in, do you think we accomplished the objectives that we wanted to accomplish? And then if the answer is yes, then say, well, let's talk about that some. What were the objectives? You know, and, and how did you measure not whether or not we were accomplishing those, you know, what are your measures for success for those objectives and so forth? And if the answer is no, then it's, well, that's interesting. I think I might agree with you. Why do you think that we didn't accomplish those objectives? You know, that is a much more productive discussion than, hey, why did we fail? Or why did you screw this up? Or, you know, some other way of essentially saying the same thing. But it ends up not being a very productive conversation because immediately people will react emotionally, they will get defensive and so forth. That's a really good point. I mean, especially, you know, they, they'll teach you in business school when they teach management by walking around. They'll teach you about asking open-ended questions that, that allow the person you're talking to to start free associating. And you can pick up some really important information when people start free associating. Right. And, it, uh, and this is something I'm terrible at personally. And I've had to work on a lot. But in a conversation, you learn a lot more from what other people say than what you say. So being willing to be quiet and listen and let other people talk is a way to learn an awful lot. And it's especially true for a leader. The stereotype, of course, is the leader does all the talking. But that's a poor stereotype, in my opinion. The best leaders that I've known spent a lot of time listening in when they did talk. It was very thoughtful, well-conceived, and very effectively communicated for whatever it was that they had to say. And I think that's a, a good model to abide by. One other question. You talked about not using emotional language. One of the things that I learned, funny enough, from having raised children is people get upset sometimes. And people want you to fully appreciate how it is to be in their shoes and to feel the upset or the frustration that they're feeling. And one of the things that I learned from a therapist that helped me with child rearing was 
that the first thing that you need to do is validate the emotions. So one of the constructive phrases I have found is that's rough or oh, wow, or I hear you. Those are still pretty productive, right? I mean, that wouldn't fall into the category of emotional language we don't want to use. Well, first of all, I would say what I meant to say was was not that we should never use emotional language. What I meant to say was that we need to be very purposeful and make sure that if we use emotional language, it's because we're trying to evoke emotion and that we avoid accidentally using language that evokes emotion when we don't want to evoke emotion. So for instance, if I were in a meeting with my direct reports and we had had a a violation of one of the principal values of the company, I might want to evoke some emotion in order to help people understand how important that value is to me. So I might use emotion evoking language in in a case where I want to do that. The key, I think, is don't evoke emotion when you don't intend to. And that's by being very careful with the words we use and try not to use words that we know are incendiary in some way. On the other hand, of course, we always need to be very understanding when other people are. And then we have to make a judgment of, do we want to play the role of sounding board and let them vent the emotion? Do we want to calm the waters by talking things out and trying to lower the level of emotion in the conversation? Do we want to be empathetic? And some of the phrases that you used are are excellent for demonstrating empathy. And so that's, again, is a judgment based on the situation of what do I want the outcome to be? And therefore, thoughtfully thinking through the language that I want to use. And the best leaders that I've been around were very quite artful in thinking through, you know, what do I want to achieve with this communication? And then choosing their words wisely in order to get the outcome to effectively communicate whatever it was that they wanted. I've learned so much from this conversation. What should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? Do you have some last thoughts for us about leadership and communication? I think one of the things that we've talked about is how do you be there for your the people who report to you? How do you be there for your your direct reports or, or the folks that work for you? And, and that is often a big challenge, especially in businesses that are growing and successful and that are becoming more complex, or as you move into positions that are more complex and so forth. So how do you do that? And, and it's one of the challenges I think every leader has. Obviously, trying to be approachable is very important where people can feel like they can come in and talk to you about whatever the issue might be, whether it's good news, bad news, or whatever. And so that leads into how do we react to bad news is especially important in how to be there for folks so that they will feel like that you're approachable. Because everything that happens in in your company is not going to be good news. So the question is, you can't do anything about the fact that people are going to have to bring you bad news from time to time, but you can do something about how you react to that. And so, again, I would encourage people, you know, try as best you can to be thoughtful, not emotional, recognize the fact that there probably is no one who feels worse about bad news than the person who's bringing it to you and to try to be reassuring and comforting and then approach it from the fact that, okay, we have a problem, what can we do to mitigate the problem and to create a solution is the best we can do given the circumstance that we're in. 
The other thing is that you do have to spend time talking to your people, and that's one of the challenges of most leaders is your your most precious commodity is usually time, uh, and it doesn't seem like there's enough time. But you do have to somehow discipline yourselves to talk to your folks, and I would include in that talking to people when there's nothing really to talk about. You know, if the only time that we communicate with folks is when you're directing them to do something or having them tell you how a, you know, a piece of information that you need to have on a project or something like that, if that's the only time you ever talk, you're missing a lot of very important communication. So sometimes it is important to talk to people when there really isn't much to talk about other than, hey, how are you doing? You know, that's is magic everything phase. going okay? Yeah, that is a magic what are your, Yes. When you yeah. have what are your big challenges? Mm-hmm. What keeps yeah. you up at so night? I think that, yeah. Right. And, and then letting them talk so that, that they can express to you whatever it is that's on their mind. And then you can, sometimes you'll learn something from that. Sometimes they won't tell you a thing that you didn't already know. But at the end of the day, it's part of the development of that trust equation that has to occur between you and your reports so that you can be an effective leader, so that when things are difficult, that no one ever hesitates to to bring you both the good news and the bad news, that they know that you have confidence in them so that they know to take the initiative. And when there's a decision that has to be made and no time to talk to you or they're trying to make a judgment how to react to a client or, or to do something, that they know that you trust and that you have their back as long as they're trying to do the right thing. So anyhow, so that, that's the kind of thing that it becomes more and more challenging for leaders and growing companies, but that I would encourage everybody to continue to do the best you can with in order to be there for those folks. Because at the end of the day, what the most productive things, the most effective things that the, the company is going to accomplish are actually going to be done by the people that work for you. You're, you're not going to be able to, to do all, all the things once you're out of the entrepreneurial role of being a one-person company. You have to rely on other folks. So that part of the leadership equation is, in my mind, exceedingly important. Absolutely. And we're all continuing to grow as leaders. The the fun thing about this is that there's always more to learn and there's always improvements that you can make and objectives you can set for yourself to improve in your leadership abilities. Absolutely. Definitely. General Jones, thank you so much for being with us. This was a great conversation. We appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure, Donna. It's always, always great to spend time with you and all the folks at WWC Global. And, and thanks for having me on. You bet.